Hi, friends. This is episode 89 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us again for the Bible Lab Podcast. Hey, today we have got a great conversation for you. It's all about Romans chapter 2. Make sure you get your Bible out right there in front of you. And also make sure you go to our website, thebiblelab.com. Go to the episodes page. Make sure you find the missing gospel little icon there. Click on that. Go to our second session. And right next to the audio uh, for session two, you're going to see a little icon that allows you to click on it. It will give you the PDF document, the very same one that we use right there in this conversation. Everybody had it in their hands. We want to make sure you have it as well. So you understand what we're talking about. And what we're talking about today is what does it mean when the God's, uh, when the Bible says God is going to punish you and you know, you've know you heaped up all of these uh, things. Uh, God's heaped up this anger against you. When you see what the Bible really says in its original language, you are going to once again realize the importance of the conversations and the deep in-depth study that we do to help you understand more clearly the character of God. I'm so delighted that you're here. Thank you for joining us here at the Bible Lab. Here we go. Number one, get your cards ready. Number one, I am seen as a goody two-shoes to most of my acquaintances. I am seen as a goody two-shoes to most of my acquaintances. Oh, look at this bad boy crowd. I'm seeing about 80% no. 80% no. And uh, I saw almost an equal split, 10% and 10% of yes and maybe. I don't know what your experience was like growing up, and some of you who are still young in in this crowd, I see some of you are high school and and college age still. Um, I don't know what your experience was like, but I found myself worrying about this much more than I I probably should have. Do my friends think I'm a goody two-shoes? Because I can't be too good, because then my friends won't be friends with me, right? And so I used to worry, am I doing enough bad so I fit in? And if you ask my mom, she'll tell you, I did plenty of bad. Yes. Number two, most people at church think their attendance will make up for their disobedience. Most people at church think their their attendance will make up for their disobedience. I'm seeing a majority of no. I'm seeing about 70 to 75% no. Yeah, and about 20% yes and 5% maybe. And I don't know if that math adds up, and I really don't care. Um, <laughs> so most of you are saying, no, no, no. People, you know, their attendance is not something that they do to make up for all the bad that they've done during the week. But if you ask some people, why do you go to church? Not just here, but if we did a survey maybe worldwide, why do you go to church? many people would say something that would end up resulting sounding a lot like you need to get the little sticker star on that little quadrant of the attendance poster board in order to earn your way into heaven, right? And so a lot of people see, well, despite the fact that I'm doing all this stuff, well, at least I'm going to church, right? And if you live in the South or if you ever lived in the South, oh, that, those are fun times because that's a unique type of church, right? You sin big, and then you apologize big, and you worship big. And the church makes up for all the sinning. We're going to talk about that today because Paul, in his letter of introduction to these people he wishes to see on his way to Spain, um, he's trying to help them understand the, the hypocrisy that goes on naturally in church if, if you're not careful. And how you act as if some of the things that you're doing makes up for all the other things that you're doing. And he's going to talk about that today. And I I want us to really try to open our hearts to ask ourselves the tough questions. Because we we become so uh, 
acclimatized to our way of doing church and our way of doing Christianity that a lot of times, if someone from the outside doesn't come and ask you about these inconsistencies in your life, you never think about them. And so we're going to talk about that today because that's what Paul really is trying to help the Romans understand about being a Christian and being a church-going person. And so we're going to talk about that quite a bit today. Number three, yes, no, or maybe, Christians are given grace because, unlike non-Christians, God can pardon their bad behavior. Oh, it looks like a fairly easy one. I've got uh, about 99% no and a couple of maybes. It may have seemed like a trick question and seemed like a really easy trick question to answer, but there's more tricks in here than you may see at the very beginning. Because as we read through this and as you understand who is this written to, who's this written for, and ultimately, Who's it not written to? You're going to see Paul is saying something a little bit deeper than just a surface reading, a plain reading of, of this scripture. And when you see what he's saying, it actually changes a lot of the key statements that have typically jumped out to people as they've read this. Specifically, phrases like, God will pour out his wrath, the wrath of God, and God will punish as you see what Paul is really saying, and actually what the original language says today, Romans 2 is a chapter, as I've talked to some of my colleagues, and I've told them I'm going through Romans, uh, many of them are like, oh, I'm glad I don't have to do that. I was like, why? Chapter 2. Chapter 2. What do you do with chapter 2? And I said, I read it in Greek, and I tell people what it means in English. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do today. And just simply by doing that, we're going to see what's gotten lost in translation. Number four, God dispenses punishments to help sinners connect with him. Oh, I'm seeing a majority of no. I'm seeing about 80% no, 10% uh, yes, and 10% maybes. It's funny that we vote so quickly and so much in a majority here on that, but when you're talking to people out in public and you hear someone say, well, you know, the Lord's trying to get them back on the path. The reason why this trouble's coming to their life, you know, it's God trying to help them wake up. Wake up. This is serious. This is God just helping these people by bringing this into their life. And so we're going to talk about that today. Does God use that in the way that most people talk about it? Because I will tell you, God does use it, but not in the way most people talk about. Number four, uh, sorry. Number five, God judges us according to our work. God judges us according to our work. I'm seeing, yes, I'm seeing a majority of no, like 85% no, 10% yes, and 5% maybe. The tough thing is uh, when you read verse six, he will, uh, chapter two, he will judge everyone according to what they have done. Uh-oh. So either we're disagreeing with Scripture or we're misunderstanding what Scripture is saying. Because you're saying you don't believe Romans 2, verse 6, where God will judge people based on what they've done. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And to get ourselves in the mindset, I want you to, I want you to talk to me about, about something that happens fairly consistently. I want to ask you, why do you think self-righteous people have an intrinsic blindness to their own faults? Why do you think self-righteous people have an intrinsic blindness to their own faults? What do you think is going on in their minds? Because they sure seem to be able to point out everybody else's mistakes, right? And their own sins. We're going to start back here with the uh, green microphone. Yeah. I think that people look for um, the outward faults. The, the, like the what? The outward faults. Yes. Like, oh, look, they're committing adultery. They stole, they said mean things but they forget the darkness in their heart because yeah. it's easy to hide. You can put uh, a kind word on and... Yeah. You know, Julie, one of the things that, that I've noticed is um, a lot of people, when they become Christian, 
they don't necessarily become better people, but they do become better secret keepers. <laughs> am I right or am I right? Or am I right? Yeah. As people become church-going people, they don't necessarily become better people. They become better secret keepers. Uh, one of my professors when I was in graduate school, um, he was a missionary over in China for several years. And I'll never forget in class, he said, I had, I had a Buddhist come up to me and say, why would I ever want to become a Christian when I have to be so much better to be a Buddhist? And he said, what do you mean by that? He says, as a Buddhist, I need to treat people a lot more kind. As a Buddhist, I have to be the embodiment of love. As a Buddhist, I have to be a person that brings in peace. And all of these, you know, friends of mine who have become Christians now are the biggest cheats. They don't care because they have forgiveness. They talk about grace as if it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. And they've become really mean unloving people and judgmental people. Why would I ever want to become a Christian when I have to become so much better as a Buddhist? And he said that struck my heart so hard that it changed his entire ministry and his missionary experience there in China because he realized there is a form of Christianity that allows you to not be loving, to not be kind, to to, to not judge people in, in, a, in a way that is really offensive. And so for me, that's, that's always stuck with me as well. Does your Christianity make you a better person or just better at hiding how bad of a person you really are? Um, was the purple mic next? Blue mic, yes. And then we'll come uh, to purple. Okay. Yes, really. Um, Scott Peck wrote about this question in his book, People of the Lie. He is a psychiatrist, and in his practice, he ran across people who were self-righteous, who could not face the fact of any darkness within. Hmm. And, and he, it's a self-deception. And he said the first, he was not even a Christian when he began his practice, but his practice led him to Christianity and the recognition of evil yeah. in the human heart. And, and he said, we need to face our darkness within to reach out to God. Yeah, and, and that's part, Marilyn, of self-honesty. Are we really being honest with ourselves? Yes. I'd like to mention the fact that sometimes I don't think we ourselves see ourselves as other people may see us. Yeah. Um, I think of what Christ said to the Pharisees. He says, you look upon other people, but you can't see what's problem. your problem is a plank in your own eye. Yes. You see that. And again, I think it's in Jeremiah, I believe it says that uh, the heart is desperate, wicked, deceitful, who can know it? Yeah. So I, th I would like to take the position that we don't always see ourselves in the light that God views us or God views things. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, the, the whole parable that you speak of where Christ said, you know, you have a plank in your eye and you're trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Take care of the plank first and then take care of the speck. But unfortunately, as Christians, it's easier to be a spectator. <laughs> than to take care of the plank in your own eye. <laughs> Sorry. I do that for the kids. Uh, red microphone, yeah, right. I, I think as I've you know, studied this and I talk to atheists and non-Christians and, and then they look at us, I think the problem with Christianity as a whole is, is we tend to look at everything as being a, a judicial punishment, like yes. everything's judicial. Yes. And, and, and we've heavily weighted it to that. And, and some of the um, scriptures uh, people have just mentioned, you know, um, what we are actually like. This, this is really a, a, a medical problem almost. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something physiological or genetic yes. that's wrong with us. It's not like we can, we start off in a neutral position that we can choose right or wrong. Yeah. We can't. We, yeah. we, we are half, we, we are always wrong and, yeah. and when we do something that's right then that's the evidence of God working our lives and yeah. we see it you see it in other 
people who aren't Christians that when yeah. they do something, and here atheists say, I, I do it right because it's what's right to do. I don't do it because I'm afraid of going to hell for all eternity. Mm. And, and they do. And there's, some of these are really decent people. Yeah. Um, it's not like all Christians are like that. But, I mean, I, I think so when you look at it from the judicial point, you can become very self-righteous because you think you're, you get into this, you're earning it. I've, I heard people say who don't believe, they believe in grace, and they, they will condemn the Pharisees and the Sadducees, yeah. but they say, well, they will obey the law now, not because they're afraid, but they do it out of a, of a good motivation, out of thankfulness, yeah. which is not possible. It's yeah. not really possible to do yeah. it anyway unless God is in you doing it for you. So. Yeah. You know, what you bring up is, is two points that are in Romans. Uh, I mean, to take the, the first one that you spoke of, you know, this inherent evil, this inherent sin. We're going to get to that in a couple of chapters. So in a couple of sessions from now, we're actually going, uh, not a couple, but about three sessions from now, we're, we're going to get there, especially as we start chapter five, in trying to understand what are we expected to do as, as followers of God and imitators of God versus what did Jesus do when, when he came and, and what was possible for him and what's possible for me. So we're going to get to, the, to that. But also what you just um, finished with as well, there is this inherent knowledge, whether you're a church-going person or not, of morality and ethics. And chapter two actually talks about that. If you'll spend this afternoon just before your nap, um, reading through the next couple of verses, uh, I believe it's between verses 12 and, uh, and 15 that talk Paul says this. You know this. You know it from nature. It's inherent. You know, the creator put it in you um, of what is right and right and wrong. So we have no excuse is what he's saying, whether you're a church-going person or not. You have no excuse. You know right from wrong because God planted it into us to, to know the difference. Exactly. Harvey. <clears throat> I think for so many Christians, and this is first person, I became baptized because I didn't want to go to hell. Now, Adventists don't get a hell. They just are lost. Yeah. But that wasn't attractive. And I wasn't so hot about heaven either. Yeah. And it was that kind of thing I was trying to follow. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I did a lot of face plants. Yeah. Um, and it was not until, as this brother mentions, mm -hmm. I recognized mm -hmm. that God, the creator God, the sustainer God, the one who maintains the universe, wanted me. Now, half Armenian, I know a good deal when I see it. <laughs> and for someone to want me, that's yeah. overwhelming. Is they it? got me. Yeah. That's but it's, it's that trying to escape. Yeah. It's the escape card. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Harvey. Yeah, Mike. I'm going to take you back to what you read at the beginning. Cool. He will judge everyone according to what they've done. What does judge mean in Greek? I suspect that the interpretation here is evaluate. Yeah, um, and, and, and very much that's one of the valid, uh, the, the valid definitions of judgment. But what you're going to see here is how is that judgment good news? Because it always has to be good news. If it's coming from God, it's good news. So how is the fact that there will be a day of judgment? A day when that's it, and God says, all right, just like, uh, just like he did uh, in Daniel's day, you know, the handwriting on the wall. You've been weighed, found wanting, this is it. This is the day of judgment. So we're going to talk about that today. How is that good news? And I think when you see what Paul is saying, you're going to be very excited today about that. Let's jump into Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to unpack some of the things that are lost in translation. Chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation on the study guide. And it reads, You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. Now the question, first of all, is uh, what are such people? What have we just been talking about in chapter 1? We're talking about this divisive line that they had, basically racism between Jew and non-Jew. The Jews and everybody else. We call them Gentiles, but if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. 
And there was all these arguments. Remember last week we, t- we talked about how within the church they were calling each other names based upon whether you did Jewish practices or did not. And so they were, they were very, very judgmental, arguing, divisive. And so he had stopped at the end by, by talking about how we judge Gentile people and how you know, we're, we're not treating them with the Spirit of God. And so as he opens up chapter 2, he says, you may think you can condemn such people. So he's talking to the Jews who had become Christian because they realized this Messiah fit their prophecy. So specifically, he's not talking to everybody. He's talking to the Jews who had accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Messianic Jews. And he says, but you're just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Verse 4, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they've done. Verse 7, he will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jews first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So before we break this down, I want to ask you, what are some common things that church-going people do in order to appear like they're in right relationship with God? What are some things that church-going people do to appear that they're in right relationship with God? We're going to start here with the red microphone. Yes, David. Uh, I came across a a quote not long ago. Um, It's uh, never look down on anybody unless you're helping them up. And uh, that's by Jesse Jackson. And I think some of us might recognize Jesse Jackson as somebody who is controversial, Mm -hmm. combative. So the irony is that some of us listening to this might have looked down our noses at Jesse Jackson. (laughs) Um, And we weren't helping him up, no. (laughs) Right, right. And then... um, I was watching an episode of The Simpsons and, you know, there's those shows where the characters go into a different time period and Montgomery Burns was playing the role of Torquemada and he said, uh, the worst kind of Christian is the one with beliefs slightly different than yours. (laughs) Uh, So again, I I think that uh, one of the things that we sometimes do as Christians is that we look down our noses at others. Yes, uh, absolutely. Absolutely, I appreciate that, David. Raul? Um, I have the privilege to travel to many countries. And you're about to go tomorrow. On a long trip, yeah, yes. tomorrow. And um, so I, I learned, um, well, I learned many things, but this, uh, this is interesting. Here in the United States and many other countries, like in Europe, we have laws, you know, civil laws and for finances and everything. But in some countries, there are laws and then there are a second set of laws that make you obey this first set of laws. Hmm. It's interesting. And I'm not going to name those countries here, but I know a few. Um, now, why is that? Why do we need a second set of laws that will make you obey what's already clear in the law? <laughs> and we have the Ten Commandments, for yeah. example. So the Jews ponder about this, and they did come up with a second set of laws, yeah. actually 600 and some of them. Yeah. 
And why that? Because they were taken into captivity three times, and the last time was traumatic to yeah. Babylon. It was traumatic. Read the book of Daniel yeah. and Nehemiah and so on. So sometime after, they realized we are not good enough. We are not, we are not obeying. Mm. What can we do? And they came up with lots of new laws. And the Pharisees arose, you know, yeah. that group. By the time of Jesus, that was strongly implemented. And Jesus went even further. Oh, no, you don't have to walk one mile. You have to walk two. Mm -hmm. Okay? And if they ask you for your coat, you give it freely, but also give more than that. And it was puzzling. Come on. Do I have to do more works? Mm -hmm. Yes, you have to do them, but with a different sense of mercy, grace, and forgiveness, and love. Now, I came, one of them, one of the Pharisees came over to talk to Jesus puzzled about all of these things and wondered why, who this man was, Jesus. And Jesus' answer was, hey, you are focusing on the wrong thing. What you need to do is to be born again. Mm. So your question here, what are some of the things that church people do? I think we do the wrong thing. Mm. And the two things we should be doing is doing the extra in grace, and be born again. Yeah, I, I love that. As, as long as when you're born again, you're not now twice as obnoxious, right? Yeah, exactly. Brian. So my, uh, I have a, a good friend. He was Episcopalian, a really true, true Christian, cool. uh, very religious man, uh, decent man. And uh, he told me one time he went to church with his other bunch of Episcopalians, and I'm not picking on Episcopalians, I'm just saying that um, he was there, and um, they're golfing, and then he brought up something about the, uh, the second coming, and he started talking about the second coming with him, and the other man just kind of waved his hand dismissively. He says, oh, you know. he goes, what? He says, oh, you don't, you don't believe that stuff, do you? He says, yeah. He goes, that's, that's why we go to church. This is, he goes, that, you go to church. He says, yeah, well, but not, not because of that. He said, well, why do you go to church? He said, you know, it makes you good. <laughs> and it blew my friend away that, you know, yeah. but I, I think a lot of people do. When I was Catholic, I mean, that was one of the reasons you go to churches so that you can be good. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that's the, the, the ultimate question, Brian, that I always come back to is, but why be good? Because in many countries, like what Raul speaks, I've traveled in a lot of countries and I've been told in one of the countries that I was in, um, if you're good, it makes you poor. Because what we think of as universal ethics and what would be considered a bribe in our country is not considered a bribe in another country. It's considered, well, it's a, it's a signature tax. Of course, you'd have to pay. I'm the authority. And the benefit of my position is I get payment for my signature. It's worth something. And so, of course, you'd have to pay for it. Uh, we would call that a bribe here. But in that same country, I was asking, because uh, there was a young man who wanted to get baptized, but he couldn't. And the reason why he couldn't get baptized was because he would lose his job. And the reason why he would lose his job if he got baptized was because church is known in that country as to make you good. And if you're good and you're not doing what everyone else in the workplace is doing, including your boss, which is ripping off materials and selling them for your own profit and skimming the top, stuff like that, they don't have dirt on you. And if they don't have dirt on you, they're worried you're, you're the narc. You're going to squeal on them. And they can't have one of those at the workplace. And so if you're one of these ethical people, we can't work with you. And he goes, I'll get fired. Which I thought was the most, here in the U.S., we're like, if you're dishonest, you're fired. If you're honest, well, we want to keep you around. You have a friend that's honest like you. Um, but they had a saying there that says, if you're poor, it's because you're stupid. And they would equate church people as stupid because they couldn't do the things to make them rich. And if you're poor, you're stupid. And so as you look at this, depending on what culture you're within, the societal norms, being a church person and becoming more good or, or a more decent, ethical, moral person um, doesn't always have the benefit that we that we espouse and, and that we talk about quite a bit. 
Uh, was the green microphone next? Yes, green, yes. Uh, to make ourselves appear good, we speak in cliches, and we pray in cliches, yes. and we misapply the Bible. Yes, exactly. We, we quote it uh, really poorly to make our point, to make people do what we want them to do. Exactly. I love it. Uh, purple mic. Yes. In Rome, somebody asked the Pope, how come that you only want Christians in your following you? And he said, no, we want these others and learn from them. Look at them. They are praying five times a day on their stomach. Mm. How many times do you pray for? And what are you doing? So we want them also because we can learn from them. I agree. I agree. And I think probably what one of the, the greatest downfalls to uh, Protestant Christianity today is the divisiveness that we've allowed ourselves to do what we call evangelism and do a crusade that brings in Christians of different denominations, baptize them into our denomination and call that good news and call that saving. That when they already had a relationship with Jesus, now we're just teaching them different information. We have to be really, really careful about what does our denomination offer? Does it offer exclusive entry into heaven? Or does it offer a, a, a community where people can study, learn more about the character of God, learn and, and feel like this is a resource to my life because these people are helping me understand God in a way that's changing my life? Is it about membership? No. Do we want them to be members? Yeah, because we want them to be you know, dedicated in community with us. We want them to, to go on this journey in a consistent way so that they, they can grow. But does their membership to our denomination make them saved or not saved? Not at all. In fact, I, I have to tell you one of the most exciting conversations I had this last week is with a non-Adventist church that is starting a Bible lab. How cool is that? And my conversation with him was, look, this isn't, this isn't to convert you to my denomination. This is to help you as a resource from my denomination. Is my denomination a resource to you? That's what it has to be. Because if it is, then, wow, we are letting our light shine. We have something to offer, not something exclusive that you have to be a member just to get this stuff. We need to be a, a, a city on a hill with, with a light. And I know that there are those that have really understood that over time. Because I know despite the fact that, you know, uh, a majority, there's about a third of you who aren't uh, Seventh-day Adventists who come here, and I'm so excited about that. Um, but I know that we've used other church resources. We've used Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Everything, and that was okay, thanks to him and, and God inspiring him on how to really understand our purpose, our, our life calling. Um, all denominations need to understand our goal is not for exclusive rights to the kingdom. Our, our goal is to, is to share what God is breathing into our community of faith, something that's shareable to all others that will help them in their understanding of God and help them grow, not to, to use it as a dividing line to say, well, we're more accurate theologically, so everyone else is obviously pagan because they don't have these five points of enlightenment from God that the rest don't have. And so we have to be really careful about how we use what God is doing through our community to really love everybody despite the differences in, in our community. Yeah, um, Green Mike. As I was uh, reading this week, I found a little quote. As a practiced, self-righteous hypocrite I always have the feeling of surprise at that statement of, of Paul's. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're, uh, thank you. We're going to dig into that to see where's the hypocrisy. Because I think a lot of us are going to go, oh, wow, okay, I do that. And so what's God's prescription for us to help us not do something that comes so natural? So what's the, what's the hypocrite blocker? 
prescription that, that God has for us. Is it blue mic this next? Yeah. Me? Yes. Yeah. Um, back to the issue of um, why do we condemn others when we are doing the same thing? <coughs> that is a very provocative thing because I have seen it in myself. But I remember Jesus on the cross. He said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yeah. And these were very religious people he was talking to. Yeah, and it seemed like they knew exactly what they were doing. They were trying to torture him to Well, death. it seems so to, to yeah. us, but he said they didn't know what they didn't. So I have concluded, uh, and I think there's a biblical basis for concluding that, that there's something about sin that is delusional. Yes. You are deluded. Yeah. And so we condemn others because we are under delusion of yeah. what see how you say it is, is a lot more eloquent i just i when i talk about that and translate it i say god is saying forgive them for they're clueless <laughs> they're just clueless exactly can i walk through a, a couple of words then i'm going to get to the the microphones that are already um hands up right now i want you to see a couple of things that are happening here in in paul's words first of all one of the phrases, the key phrases that a, a lot of people have a hard time, especially when they're going through Bible study, is verse 2, where it says, God in his justice will punish. And this is one of those phrases, it feels like we're going back to, you know, the uh, fire and brimstone type sermon. So, you know, watch out, because whatever you're doing right now, there's going to come a day and God will punish. And they say it as if God's looking forward to it. Something you have to understand about what Paul is saying to this specific audience. I want you to see this. A common tradition in Christ's day claimed that Abraham himself sat at the gate of hell to keep all Jews out, regardless of their deeds. Trypho, the Jew, is alleged, uh, is alleged to have said, they who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient toward God, share in the eternal kingdom. Because universalism is what the Jews were teaching. And then the uh, apocryphal book, Wisdom of Solomon, written in the first century, bears this and many similar statements. Quote, So while chastening us, thou scourgest our enemies 10,000 times more. So the Jews had it in their mind, uh, this really saved by genes theology. Doesn't matter what you do, if you are genetically connected to Abraham, you're saved. Because Abraham himself is sitting at the gate of hell, and when you should be led that way, he goes, wait, wait, that knows, you look Jewish. Are you Jewish? You say, well, I'm Jewish. Uh, my father was a Jew. Okay, you're good. You don't have to come in. And you would not have to pay any punishment for the way that you lived your life. So you could be absolutely horrible as a Jew. But these Gentiles had to be much, much better. So understand, this is the belief system of the Jews in the day that Paul is writing this. That's why he's being so direct and so intentional about what he's saying. Because as you notice, the last verse that we read, verse 11, says, God does not show favoritism. So this was good news for the Gentiles, but it was bad news for the Jews. Because if God doesn't show favoritism, it matters how you live, and you have to live the same level that you have to practice what you preach. And they were preaching to the Gentiles, if you want to share in our salvation with our Messiah, you got to do this, but they weren't doing it. The Jews weren't doing it. This word favoritism in the Greek is made up of the word for face and the verb receive. So it has a noun and a verb there. Face and receive, which in its compound form means to receive face. Or literally, the verse reads, for there is not receiving of face in the presence of God, that is, God does not judge by looks. Can you recall another place in Scripture where 
God does not look at the same things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. That's right. So how is this a picture of God's justice? Still good news. Where's the good news in this? Where's the good news? I'm going to go to a couple of mics, and then if you want to touch on this, you, you can. But I imagine where we're going in the mic, we're going to take a step back a little bit. Red mic. Yes, Carolyn. Actually, we're not taking a step back. Good, I'm thank you. interested in 8, 9, 10, and 11. So it says God does not show favoritism in verse 11. Mm-hmm. But then it says in 9 and 10, the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Now, are you just trying to tell us that the Jews were actually going to be judged a harsher judgment than the Gentiles? No, it's the same because he doesn't show favoritism. So this phrase, and you'll see it quite a bit. You saw it last week in chapter one. You see it this week in chapter two for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That was not, and all commentators say this, that was not a statement of the Jews having priority. And it wasn't a, a phrase saying that they were either more important or they would go through line first, and now that we've served all the Jews, now you Gentiles can, can go through. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying in, in uh, realistic terms is the Jews have already had this. They've had this news. In fact, you can, if, if you read through chapter 2, you see him say this. You've had this. The Gentiles didn't have this. You grew up with it. You have all these traditions. You have these feasts. You have these parties. You have you know, the Torah. You have temple and you've been brought up understanding this justice of God and so for you it has to be like in second nature for you that this truth you had it first so it first came to you and now you're sharing it with the Gentiles but all commentators say in no way is is this and you can see by what Paul says throughout the the letter to the Romans that in no way is he prioritizing Jews. What he's doing is he's making them more responsible. You're very responsible because it came to you first. So you know it deeper and all the Gentiles are saying, what are you talking about when you get into deeper aspects of theology? Uh, Was red microphone? Yeah, Harvey. What I hear you saying is to come against the common phrase I hear in our church. We have the truth. The truth is a person we do not have yes. to whom we belong by love. And I think it's this dichotomy that results in the prayer, make people good, uh, people become Christians and make the Christians good. Yeah. It, it's this dichotomy because we have. Yes, I, and, and I love that. And that causes uh, that viewpoint of having truth versus knowing the God of truth has caused a lot of issues over over the past couple of generations, even within denominations that come in where their evangelistic efforts are based on, we have more truth than the church across the street. So join us because you wouldn't want to live with half truth and we have more truth. And so it becomes something, truth becomes something to be possessed not something to know the bearer of truth, which is, which is God. Uh, blue mic and then purple mic, yeah. yeah. Hi, um, I have a question. Yeah. This verse, God and his justice will punish. I never liked the word punish. Ah. Uh, we, we haven't talked about consequences and self-responsibility. Ooh, that's a tough word. <laughs> responsibility. And so when we talk about God punishing, it almost sounds like an external reward yes. for a negative reward yes. rather than I'm suffering what I brought on myself because God's law is operational and 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 I'm out of line with that natural order. Yes. Yeah, I love that. That's where we have to go. That's the question that we all need to be asking. And I'm so glad that you verbalized it because if you're not asking this question, that's the question you have to ask is what is this God will punish business? Because uh, we've for five years talked about God is love and he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all come to repentance and he's willing to 
you know, sacrifice in your place. So what is this God will punish stuff? And I want us to look because verse 4 and 5 really dig into it. In verse 4, he uses the phrase, does this mean nothing to you? Remember, he's talking to the Jews, the Jewish audience. Does this mean nothing to you? In, in Greek, kataphroneo is the Greek word there. Kataphroneo, it's once again a compound word where phroneo means to have understanding, be wise, to feel, to think, to direct one's mind to a thing. And kata means down. Thus, put them together, it means to think a thing down. In present day language, David just used the phrase, to look down one's nose at. So in literal sense, he's saying, why are you looking down your nose at this beautiful gospel, this good news that God has brought to you? You're looking down as if, as if, as if you're way up here. Secondly, why are you looking down your nose at these Gentiles? You should be excited that people who aren't part of your community are saying, can I be part of your community? I want to share in the salvation that God is offering. But in verse 5, he says, because you are stubborn, he goes on, he says, storing up terrible punishment for yourself. And this is a key phrase that I think many theologians, even Bible interpreters, have, have stepped completely over, which is why we have a huge mistake later on. You're, you're going to see in verses, uh, in, in verses 5 and 8 through 10, where they're attributing to God something the scripture never says. So I want us to take a look at this. What does it mean because you're stubborn? Well, stubborn or hardness, as it's translated in some, is sclerotis, which means obstinacy, stubbornness, hardness. This is the origin of our modern word for sclerosis. Now, I don't know if there's a medical professional here today. <laughs> oh, this is Loma Linda, never mind. What does sclerosis mean to you? Huh? What, what, what is it typically used for, to describe? Hardening of the arteries. What happens when those arteries are hardened? Death. Heart attack. That heart can't get the circulation. You don't have life, and you definitely don't have it more abundantly. So this hardening, he's saying, this sclerosis that's happening within your church you have this hardening of a heart toward people who are saying, I want this good news too, but you're, you're looking down your nose at these people. Your, your heart has sclerosis. And then to add, it all, uh, to add it even more, he says you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. And this word, storing up, can also be translated as treasurist, which we don't use in, in modern English now. But the word is thesarizo, thesarizo in the Greek, which means to gather and lay up to heap up, to store up like treasure. So imagine you're in an Arabian night story and you've got all this treasure and you have your cave that you fill with all the gold and the treasure and everything that you've stolen. And you stored it up. And there are so many tall piles. You've got mountains of this treasure that you yourself have stored up. That's what Paul is saying. You've stored up something, but it's not good because what you're storing up is consequences. All the things that you're doing have consequences and you're not listening and because you keep doing it, you are piling up consequences that only have one possible ending. It's going to collapse on you like a wave. And we'll see that language here in a moment. But I want to get to the purple mic first. Yeah. Well, you got about five minutes past my original thought, but Sorry. we'll give it a try here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was kind of going back to when we had uh, mentioned uh, God does not show favoritism. Yeah. I think it was very, uh, Jesus highlighted with Nicodemus. Mm -hmm. You're a leader in Israel and yeah. you don't know these things. Yeah. And uh, that drives home to me like as a christian seventh-day adventist yeah. um you know i grew up in the church been here baptized here all that stuff and uh what are some of the theological ideas that i've held on to that are that are causing a a, a division between yeah. me and what maybe we would call gentiles yeah 
And I've been doing a Bible study through the book of Hebrews, and uh, I barely made it past like the five verses. I've been stuck on it for weeks, but in sundry times. The whole book of Hebrews is everything that we're talking about here, and that is God is asking the Jewish nation to give up something that they've been holding on to for centuries. And that is not to be uh, not to be centralized in their uh, ideology of theology, but to spread out and say, here's the gospel of love. Here's the compassion of Jesus Christ. My question that I have for myself and our church here, and when we talk about these ideas, what is it that God is asking us to give up that we've been holding on to for centuries? That's that's huge. And that's the tough thing, because we have no idea how much our sociology dictates our theology. Um, your societal norm, what's normal, what's comfortable, uh, all it takes is you going to a different church to realize, ooh, they do it differently here. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with this. Well, why are you not comfortable with it? Why are you not comfortable with the style of music? Well, it's because your introduction was at a certain period of time and everything after that is a bit different. But had you been born a couple of decades later, you wouldn't even even notice. In fact, you might even be blessed by something that other people feel is a curse. But you mentioned the Hebrews, and I, I encourage you on your journey through Hebrews, because when you get to chapter 12, chapter 12 speaks directly to what you just said. Because Paul, it's believed that he wrote it, Paul says, in order to reach the next mountain, which is Mount Zion, which I want you to grasp and take hold of. You've got to let go. You can't reach the new mountain and hang on to the old mountain. And the old mountain is Mount Sinai. And there's this shaking. Now, when we've talked as people about the great shaking, we've always talked about, oh, there's going to be a time of great shaking where those who aren't really, really connected with God will let go of things that are really important. And they'll, they'll let go of of the traditions that we need to hang on to. And in that time of shaking, you need to hang on to Mount Sinai. Because if you let go, you'll be lost. And Paul tells the people, if you don't let go of the old, you'll never be able to reach the new. And so I encourage you on your journey, and any of you who want to go through that journey, especially as you get to chapter 12 of Hebrews, to understand Paul's been working on this For most of his ministry, trying to help people understand, if you're ever going to reach what God really wants you to reach, you have to be open to God's leading you away from the comfortable. Because if if church is just about giving you what you're comfortable with, you will never grow. And any of you who go to the gym on a regular basis, you know the role of the gym is to make you uncomfortable. But the product of the gym is to make you stronger, right? And the church should be the same. Church should make you very uncomfortable so that you become stronger, so you're ready to face what the world has for you the other six-sevenths of the week. Right? Red microphone. Yeah, Larry. Speaking to your previous question, how is this picture of God's justice still good news and about his punishment? And Hebrews 12, and Hebrews 12, 6, and Proverbs 3, 12, it says, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And I remember a story of two boys who get in trouble. Uh, they do something bad. One of the boys sees the other one punish his son. Nothing happens to the other boy. And uh, later on he says, you know, gosh, I wish my dad would, would show that care for me. He doesn't care what I do. Yeah. But the yeah. father who disciplines him is trying to correct the son. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a punishment, but it's really to discipline him and get him on the right track. I, I, I love that. Now, let's look at how God disciplines, because we talked last week in chapter one, it seemed like what it was saying very clearly is that when God punishes you, when he's angry, remember the Greek word orge, God's anger, orge, it's a unique word, there's three different words for anger, in this one it means disappointment, so in God's, should say, disappointment in you, what does he do in response to his disappointment. And last week in chapter one, we saw that he left you in your freedom to do whatever you want to do. Very disappointing to him, but he says, my judgment is that you will be allowed to cause yourself misery in the future. Chapter two is still the same frame of thought. 
Because as you look at what it's saying here, I want you to look at verses 5 and 8 through 10. When it talks about this day of anger, orge, remember, you should read a day of disappointment, the great disappointment for God. A day of disappointment is coming where most translations that I've read says he, meaning God, will pour out his anger and wrath. And this is a point where people are like, well, be careful, little feet, where you go, because God's wrath is coming. He's going to pour it out on you. But I want you to, to note something that, that is very, very important in understanding how can God be love and be a God who pours out wrath and anger. Once again, this is one of the places in Scripture I get really frustrated with. It's understandable that each generation that tries to translate the Bible into modern language, it's understandable that, like I said before, sociology always dicta dictates theology. We can't separate ourselves from what our traditional societal beliefs of God when we're even coming in and, by the way, you don't just translate scripture, you have to use another form called interpretation. And there's all different forms, there's different schools of thoughts of how you not only translate, but you interpret. And uh, one of the things I want you to see here is that, and it says right there in your study guide, the Greek text here of verse 5 and verse 8 through 10, the Greek text does not mention the source of wrath and anger in verse 8. It does not mention the source of the suffering and pain in verse 9. And in verse 10, it does not mention the source of glory, honor, and peace. In the Greek text, the series of nouns appear without verbs to relate them to particular agents, which means who, who caused it. Most English translations provide an impersonal web, uh, excuse me, verb, for example, will come or there will be. So in the very passive tense. But I want you to do something that is very, very important. If you were a Bible interpreter at this time, and you've just gone through the verse that says, you got this sclerosis of your heart, and my fear is that you're heaping up, you're treasuring all of these consequences that are coming. Now the question is, who is in control? Who has stored up all the problems, all the consequences that are coming? Is it God that's doing it, or is the individual person doing it? So how could God pour out something that you have in your hands? So even though many translations will say God or he will pour out this anger and wrath, you have to look at the verses before it and the chapter before it to say, no, God is telling you I'm disappointed and I'm concerned because there will be a day. There will be a day when enough is enough. And at that time, you will receive what you worked for. So now does verse 6 make a little bit more sense as well? There will be a day when what you've worked toward, and if that's treasuring up all these things, that they'll have horrible consequences for you, especially eternally. If you've been spending all your time storing this up, there will be a day when God says enough, and at that time, yes, it will be poured out to you. And the word also is the same word to use for a crashing wave. He's saying it's all going to come crashing down on you one day. And the reason why I'm telling you is because I love you. I don't want you to be inundated with a tsunami of your consequences, of your life. So the question is, how is this love? Well, because number one, he's warning you. <laughs> number two, how is there a day of wrath or a day of judgment or a day when all this is, it ends? How is this good news? Well, let me ask you this. Many of you have been scrolling through the news, and whether you're watching on one news channel or, or another, the call to action in the Ukraine right now is for the war to cease, right? So right now, if you were to ask a person who is in the Ukraine, what would be the best news for you today? What would they say? There is an end. There is a day of reckoning. There's a day when it all stops. To them, that's their prayer right now, that it all comes to an end. So that's why for us as people of faith, we can't wait for that day of judgment to come. Why? 
because we want it to end. But what is God doing in the meantime through Paul here is he's giving a warning to church folk to say, look, don't keep storing up all these things in secret that in the end, since you're going off and doing your own thing and piling it up, it's going to destroy you. The good news is God will forgive you of all your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So ask for forgiveness, turn from your wicked ways, and enjoy the benefits that God brings. Don't do it on your own, storing up all these consequences for your future, because you're doing it on your own, and your, your righteousness is superficial, it's all on the outside, and God wants you to be saved. Julie. I feel like it's even worse, the idea that we're not storing up our, our, our treasure, right, our punishment, yeah. that instead it's leaking out all over the place on the people that we love, on our families, and they're bearing the consequences. Yeah. I mean, it's really in now to talk about generational trauma. But for me, I, I just feel like generational trauma is when we don't hold that, like we're, we're not dealing with it, where the consequences of our sin are all over the people that we love. And they're passing down to, you know, doesn't the Bible say that it goes down to the third and fourth generation? I don't even know if it ends there. Yeah. And I believe, Julie, that the reason why it becomes generational is what we've spoken about. We pass on to the next generation our viewpoint of God. Who is God? What does God want? What does it mean that God is love, but also what does it mean God will punish? And we pass on to the next generation who, quite frankly, uh, if it keeps going the way it is, I, I know that my grandparents read all the red books, you know what I'm talking about? All the doctrinal red books. And they came up with principles and, and rules that made sense. And, and, and they shared those with the next generation. And then the, the parent generation, they, they didn't read the books as much, maybe a little bit, but they still had the rules. And they shared the rules with the next generation. The next generation says, this doesn't make sense. And they didn't read any of the books, right? But the rules, they, they found, oh, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't work. And they started figuring out what was wrong, whether the flaws with all these rules that were passed down from generation to generation. And I, I think that's what happens generationally and why the, quote, sins are passed from second, third, fourth generation is because as long as you have a warped view of God, it warps your generations in, in an increasing amount the farther away they get from having a real connection with source and, and source material of, of God. We're out of time, but I, I, I want to share with you something here. I'm certain that many of you either grew up in a church that that warned you about the wrath of God and a day is coming uh, of God's wrath. I want you to see what Paul, through God's inspiration, is really saying here. He's saying, look, you can live your life thinking that just because you're connected with a religious organization that you've got a coupon for all this bad behavior and it'll just all go away. But God loves you too much to allow you not to reach your highest calling of purpose. God created all of you with a purpose. Every single one of us, everything that God has created has a purpose. And I know it's hard to think the mosquito serves a purpose, but you have a purpose. And God needs you to understand that by storing up secretly all of these things that have consequences down the road, it, it will affect your God-given life purpose. And that's why he's warning you that a day is coming. It's not a day that God delights in because it uses the word for disappointment. We talk about disappointment that God didn't come sooner. God's disappointment will come on the day that he comes. The day of God's disappointment. And his disappointment is not in your behavior. His disappointment is that there are those who chose not to be connected to him and let him cover them with his righteousness. They tried something different. They tried a self-righteousness, a righteousness that did not come from God, but comes from your desire to pretend. In chapter 3, 
God is going to open up. So what does that mean for you? If you're tired of faking it until you make it, if you're tired of, of going through life feeling like I'm just not measuring up, I'm not fulfilling my life purpose, in chapter three, God says, this is the key to help you go from feeling like a fraud to being the most successful, purpose-driven person your life could ever be. And I hope you come back next week for that session. That's right, because that is where we're going in session three. We're heading on to Romans chapter three, and we're going to talk about what does it mean when Paul says there is a righteousness apart from the law? What does that mean? Does that mean that the law was done away with on the cross? How do we have a right relationship with God apart from the law? And once you understand exactly what Paul's talking about here, not only will the rest of Romans make sense to you, but the rest of your spiritual walk will have a huge leap forward. So I don't want you to miss it. Make sure you come back for episode 90 while we, while we have that conversation together. It's so great going on this journey with you. If you would like to join us in starting a Bible lab where you live, will you please go to our website, go to the contact page, and write to us and ask us to help you start a Bible lab, and we will do just that. I have a whole team of people who will be in contact with you and will help you have these conversations with all the study guides for free right there in your community so you can help people research and develop this amazing, infinitely loving character of God. So let us know and we'll be in touch. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 1030 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.